Good morning. This morning we're going to start our study of the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. It's kind of funny sometimes to uh, hear how people pronounce Hebrew names. <clears throat> Heard this guy teaching from this book and he kept referring to Malachi, <laughs> the uh, Italian prophet. Malachi's name means uh, my messenger. Usually the uh, name of the prophet has something to do with his message. Here God brings his message, the message he wants us to hear. So he uses a guy by the name of my messenger. Now we don't know exactly who this is. He was writing about 430 B.C. This is the last book written in the Old Testament. This is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, John Calvin, the reformer, uh, figured out he thought Malachi was Ezra's last name, that Ezra actually wrote this. Now, I don't think this is true, but it's clear that he had a lot to do with. He was working right alongside Ezra and Nehemiah. Probably wrote this shortly after Nehemiah had gone back to Babylon to serve the king after his second term as governor of Palestine. If you remember, the nation of Israel was divided into two countries by David's grandson, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, that that civil war there. That was about 930 B.C. A couple hundred years later, 722 B.C., the northern ten tribes were completely wiped out by the Assyrians. They were gone. Then in 586 B.C., the uh, southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, taken to Babylonia. Not too long after that, though, uh, God worked in the heart of a Persian king who had conquered Babylon, Cyrus. God moved in his heart to let the Jews come back to Palestine. This was about a 100 years before Malachi wrote. The Jews came back, they rebuilt the temple, then under Nehemiah they finished restoring the city of Jerusalem. Some time had gone by, the newness had worn off, and they were struggling again. They uh, were feeling abandoned, feeling confused. They needed to hear from God again. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been going through the minor prophets. And typically, I've been choosing short ones so that we can uh, go through a a book a week. Well, I'm going to indulge myself. We're going to take several weeks to get through Malachi. It's four packed chapters. So we're going to probably take two or probably three weeks to get through it. So listen to God's message through Malachi, starting with verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. God starts off his message with an awesome statement. I have loved you, says Yahweh. Now the perfect tense that he uses there really carries the meaning, I have loved you and I still love you. God is saying, I love you. Love you. Now, the creator of the universe, the God of eternity, the one who speaks and it comes into being, the one who is so far above every human and human institution, says, I love you. One time when I was in college, 
I spoke to the king of Saudi Arabia on the phone. I was down at the University of California, down in Santa Barbara, uh, going to school. I lived with the manager of our apartment complex. And uh, one of the princes of Saudi Arabia moved into an apartment downstairs with his three bodyguards. And one day, one of the bodyguards came up and asked if I would help him make a phone call. So I did. I called the uh, palace in Riyadh, asked if I could speak to uh, Crown Prince Fahd, who is now the, the king. And this whole process was taking some time. And the uh, bodyguard said, well, I've got to go back downstairs for something. If you get through while I'm gone... Give him a message. Well, I got through while he was gone. And I'm talking to the king's secretary, and I said, I have a, I have a message from Prince Khalid, thinking I was just going to give the message to the secretary. And he said, okay, just a minute. And he put the king on the phone. I gave him the message. He thanked me several times, and I just kind of hung up the phone. <laughs> I just stood there. I mean, I was stunned. I had just talked to the king of Saudi Arabia on the phone. Now, that's incredible. But the reality is that earlier that day, I had talked to the God of the universe. I talked to him every day. And I was sobered by the, the difference in my reaction between those events. See, not only do I talk to the God of the universe every day, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and Moses, and David, and Jesus. I talk to him every day. But he also tells me that he loves me. That's almost more than I can process. But I want to. And I want you guys to deal with that. Right here, the God of the universe says, I love you. And this is really the underlying basis for the whole book. God loves you, and that's why he bothers to work through some problems in your relationship. He cares about that relationship. And so he wants to talk with you about some things that are getting in the way, some things that are coming between you. You know, if I um, am walking in the hall... And somebody I don't know walks by, pays no attention to me. It doesn't bother me a bit. But if somebody I really care about seems to purposefully ignore me, it hurts. My wife Becky is an identical twin. When she and her sister were in high school, they were constantly accidentally offending their friends. You know, a friend of, of, of Becky's would pass Ginger in the hall, and Ginger doesn't know her, and so she'd just walk on by. And the friend would be offended, thinking that Becky had just snubbed her, just ignored her. So they had to learn to uh, greet everyone that they met as their closest friend, just to <laughs> avoid hurting and offending all of their friends. You see, God loves these people. He cares about their relationship. And they were ignoring Him. And it hurt. And that's why He goes ahead... And wants to talk these things through with him. He's unwilling to allow their indifference to continue. And God loves you. And it hurts when you ignore him. And that's why he wants to talk it through with you. Again, this is what underlies the whole book. God's desire to work through some, some attitudes of people he loves. 
But listen to the people's response when uh, God tells them that He loves them. Verse 2, But, you ask, how have you loved us? Prove it. I mean, apart from the just the audacious presumption of talking to the God of the universe like that, what a cruel thing to say. How could that not wound a loving God? And He's loved them. And they just say, I don't see it. They look around. Uh, They're not happy. They're not fulfilled. Things aren't going the way they want them. Therefore, they conclude God must not love them. See, they're ignoring all of the evidence all around them. They somehow thought that He was obligated to make them happy, to make their life easier, to give them what they wanted. And when He didn't give them what they wanted... Out of their self-pity and their selfishness, they pull away from Him. They reject Him. And it's a sign of a selfish, immature, petty little person when they can't see the love that's being given to them by people around them. Their own uh, wants and their own inflated self-importance keeps them from being able to see love. On the other hand, it's a sign of health maturity, a loving person that can see and acknowledge and appreciate even the smallest acts of kindness. Let's not be so cruel and petty as to treat a loving God like that. My counseling for couples who are preparing for marriage, I spend a lot of time talking about expectations. You know, each one of us has our own personality and preferences. And so when we try to love another person, we usually do for them what we would want done for us. But you see, they're different. They have a different personality, different preferences. So it doesn't always connect. One of my teachers in seminary told me about his his first Christmas present for his wife. He bought her a complete set of Bible commentaries. That didn't do the trick. <laughs> you know, he, he wanted to love her, but that didn't say love to her. He would have been delighted with that present. But what that said to her was, here, study up so you can enter into to my world. I have another friend who likes to spend time alone, and so he wanted to do something for his wife. So he planned a little mini vacation for her, off by herself. Now again, <laughs> he wanted to say, I love you. What she heard was, I don't want to be around you. <laughs> and he was really trying to love her, but she was looking in a different direction. Her, her personality and logic led her to the equation, if he loves me, he'll want to spend time with me. His personality and logic led him to the equation, I love her, so I'll give her some time alone. You know, in marriage, it is so important that we learn each other that we learn to effectively communicate our love to another person according to who they are. Again, expectations focus our attention in one direction. Well, someone may be trying to love us from another direction. And these people here in Malachi had developed some very narrow, selfish expectations of what God's love should look like. And they were ignoring the evidence of his love all around them. And what's more, they loved him 
for what they thought he could give them. And when he didn't give them what they wanted, they pulled away. They withdrew from him. But God is a generous God, and he condescends to answer their rude rebuke, their rude challenge. Unfortunately, this answer is a little bit hard to understand. Let me read it. Again, we're still in verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild, or we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Like I said, this is kind of confusing. How does God's love for Jacob demonstrated by his hatred of Esau? How is God's love for the Jews proved by wiping out the Edomites? This is confusing. Let's take, let's take a little time here. First of all, this is the passage that uh, Paul quotes in Romans 9. And the point Paul is specifically making there is that God's choice of Jacob over Esau was not based on their performance. God chose Jacob before they were even born, before either of them had done anything. In fact, as it turns out, later in life, Esau seems to have more integrity than Jacob. And it wasn't because God saw such potential in Jacob. The point Paul makes is very clear. God's choice of Jacob was simply God's loving, generous choice. Same thing's true of God's choice of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 8 make it absolutely clear that God chose Israel simply because God chose them. The point being made in that passage is that Israel was not a great nation. It was a small nation. It was not a powerful nation. It was a weak nation. God just chose them to love them. In the Psalms we're told that God loves For his namesake. God loves because that is who he is. Okay, now how does all that funnel down to us, apply to us? Well, God chose you to love. Not because you've done more good than bad. Not because he sees such potential in you. But simply because he chose to love you. And he's going to keep loving you, simply because that's who he is. And when the enemy comes, when Satan comes and says, look what you just did. Look how you yelled at your kids. Look what you were just thinking. God can't love you. You don't deserve his love. You're not good enough to be one of his people. You can say, yeah, but God chose me. And he loves me. And he's going to keep loving me simply because that is who he is. The next thing that we need to take note of is that the picture of God loving Jacob and hating Esau is not the picture of a parent who treats one child kindly and another child cruelly. In Scripture... Hate is a relative term. In in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone does not hate 
his father and mother, his wife, his brothers, his sisters, his children, his pet goldfish, he is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus is not saying we should treat the people in our family hatefully. He's not saying we should have an emotional hatred for them. What he's saying is that our commitment to him, our loyalty to him is absolute. And even though we love the people around us and we treat them in a loving manner, nothing and no one is allowed to to, to usurp, to, to come in the way of that loyalty to Jesus. And there may come a time when that means that we have to let someone we love go. In fact, that term hatred is synonymous with letting go. See, what God did in loving Jacob was he kept hassling him. He kept wrestling with him. He kept pulling him back. What God did in hating Esau was not to push him away. God loved Esau. But when Esau left, God let him go. That was the difference. In verse 4, it talks about Edom. Edom, The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. They're the nation that came from Esau. The point that that God's making here is you have two people from two brothers, the same lineage, both descendants of Abraham, both descendants of Isaac, culturally, ethnically, the same people. No difference. But God chose one of those people to keep pursuing, to keep going after. You see, Edom was reaping the results of their own decisions, their own wickedness, when they were destroyed. The miraculous thing was that Israel, even though they deserved destruction as a natural consequence of the choices they made of their own wickedness, and in Scripture we see them every bit as wicked as Edom when they were wicked. God punished them, but never allowed them to be completely destroyed. He always resurrected them through a remnant. So again, the reason God chose Edom for this illustration is that there's no difference. The Edomites were the same as the Israelites. They were were next of kin, descendants, the same lineage. See, the same thing could have been said of any of the nations. Their destruction in history was just. God's preservation of Israel was grace. Reminds me of a movie I saw a long time ago that I really liked. It was called The Wind and the Lion. And this movie was set, I think, about the 1920s, about an Arab chieftain who controlled this vast area of desert in North Africa. He's traveling across the desert with this American woman. And they come to an oasis, and some of his officers bring him uh, four men who were caught stealing water. Now, the penalty for this was death. So they bring these four guys to the king, and he climbs off his horse. He takes out his sword, and he beheads two of them. The other two he releases and tells them never to do that again. The American woman is horrified. She says... How can you be so cruel? 
And the uh, Arab chieftain looks at her and says, Cruel? I am known for my mercy. I protect and provide water for all of my people. Those four men deserve to die. I let two live. You see, the Bedouins around him, they were shocked at his mercy, at his generosity, at his grace. The fact that God kept picking Israel up over and over again in the face of their sin and mistreatment of God is a sign of his incredible love. The fact that God keeps calling you and me back to himself, reminding us that we're ignoring him, that we're drifting away, is a sign of his incredible love for us. He keeps taking us back. And He will keep taking us back, no matter how often we fail. See, God does not condone sin, any sin. But He will forgive all sin when we turn to Him and confess. God is not tolerant. God is forgiving. See, this is the true God, rather than our our shallow image of how we would want God to be or we think he ought to be. God loves us too much to just leave us in our sin. Sin makes us miserable. God loves us enough to make us miserable, to frustrate us. But but it's not to push us away. It's because he wants a relationship with us. If he didn't love us, He would just let us go in our sin until it destroyed us completely and everyone around us. You see, He does love us. He loves us too much to, to just let us slip away. He loves us too much to just let us go on playing Christian. He loves us enough to make us miserable. He loves us enough to give us His Word so that we know when we're sinning. He loves us enough to give us people who love us, who will come to us and tell us we're blowing it. A a loving wife or husband who will put their foot down and tell us that the way we're acting is unacceptable. A loving friend who will come and gently appeal to us to wake up, to turn. He's given us His Spirit inside us to convict us. You see, when God calls you back, don't resent it. Don't uh, get angry at the messenger. Realize that this is an expression of His love. Don't harden your heart. Thank Him for loving you like that. Thank Him for reminding you. And turn back to Him. Come to Him. He will forgive you your attitudes. He will forgive your sins. Again, God condones no sin, but He'll forgive all sin. God is not tolerant, but He is forgiving. In verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and say, may the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Now there's a lot here. But but let me cut down to the bottom line. See, God's ultimate desire in expressing that pursuing love to Israel, to keep pulling them back, to keep 
lifting them up, was that the nations around would see the, the difference how other nations came and went and were destroyed and disappeared. But Israel, this little tiny nothing nation, just keeps coming back, coming back. It never disappears. And that they would see in that God's faithfulness. And that they would magnify God beyond the borders of Israel. And see, God's desire for, for in loving us is the same. He wants us to recognize how good it is to have the God of the universe tell us that He loves us, that He pursues us, that He protects us, that He keeps calling us back to Himself. And as we realize that, we look around and we realize what the people around us don't have. They don't have a confidence in the future, knowing that God loves them and that God controls the details of life. They don't have the peace that only God can give. They don't have the satisfaction that can only come from obeying God. They don't have the understanding of life and of how to love that keeps us from destroying ourselves. See, God's love for Israel had as its ultimate purpose that the nations around would see His love and come to Him. And God's love for us is an expression of His love for all people. He wants the people around you to see His faithfulness, to see that He's good and generous. See, it isn't that the things in life don't knock us down. It's that God keeps picking us back up. Sometimes we think that, that our testimony is strongest when we pretend that nothing goes wrong in our lives, that we never do anything wrong. That's garbage. We are no better than anyone else. Our lives are no more uh, problem-free, trouble-free than anyone else. The difference is that we have a God who loves us and keeps picking us back up, and keeps calling us back to what is true and what is right. See, no one's attracted to a a, a fake, superficial, pasted-on smile. God wants people to really know Him. And the way He's doing that is by us letting people into our lives, letting them see our failures, see our struggles, but to see God's faithfulness in the midst of that. That's the testimony that will lead them to really know Him and honor Him. And that's why God is so bothered by hypocritical and superficial religion. It clouds the picture what he goes on to do in the next couple of verses, and in fact, next several chapters, is to point out how phony these guys had become. You see, God wants us to know how much our phoniness bothers him. But we've got to keep it in context. God loves you. And he's pointing out your faults, my faults, not to push you away, but because he wants a better relationship with you. And with that starting point, his love and his acceptance, we can begin to look at our failures, to look at our sins and see them like they are. They are ugly and God hates them. Verse 6. 
A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. God starts by saying, you you call me your father. Do you not show me the respect you show a father? You call me Lord, but you don't obey me. Where's the respect that should go with that relationship? You see, these people were quick to say they had a relationship with God. But God says, you tell everybody how close we are, but you ignore me to my face. These guys are like name droppers who want everybody to think that they're they're close to somebody important, but there's no substance to the relationship. And then he uh, addresses the, the priests. He says, it is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. I first read this and I thought, uh-oh, I've been found out. You know, I'm the preacher. He must be talking to me. And i got to tell you, the, the pressure to fake it when you're in professional ministry is sometimes heavy. I've told you this story before, but uh, one time I was making a hospital call over at St. Luke's with my daughter, Holly. She was about five at the time. And we're, we drove over there, and St. Luke's has no clergy parking. They, they do over at St. Al's, and I like it. It's kind of convenient. But they don't at St. Luke's. So I'm walking in grumbling about no clergy parking. And I stopped and I turned to Holly and I said, do you know what a clergy is? And she looked up at me and she said, is that kind of like a hypocrite? (laughs) I said, well, uh, I guess it is. (laughs) But like I said, the pressure to fake it is sometimes great. I mean, if I'm not doing well, I can't do my job. And I don't want to lose my job. Fortunately, the uh, elders here are wise enough to know that there's no difference between me and anyone else. Like David Roper always says, they pay me for being good. You guys are all good for nothing. <laughs> and when we, uh, when we think about it, all true believers are priests. In Revelation 1.6 says that Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. The role of a priest was twofold. First of all, they were the go-between between God and man. They brought God's love and God's word to the people. And secondly, they were the go-between between man and God. They brought the needs of people to God. They laid the sacrifices from the people before God. You see, that's our job. All of us, each of us. Our job is to bring God's love and His truth to the people around us and to bring their needs before God in prayer. So even these sections that are are, uh, addressed to the priests apply to you as well. Well, God indicts the priests saying that they have despised His name. And and they respond indignantly, When? God says, when you offer rotten food on the on my altar, you see what was going on. Typically, a, a, a sacrifice was brought. The priests laid the whole sacrifice on the altar, and then they were they would eat from that. The food, certain parts were completely burned up, but most of it was left there for the priests to eat. But what these guys were doing is they were keeping. All but the sick animals and all about the throwaway parts. That's the stuff that they were sacrificing to God. In verse 8, 
God's response to this is, try doing that with your governor. See how he likes it. Try giving him the throwaway parts. See what he does. You see, we so often give God the throwaway parts of our lives. We give him time, but only after we've done everything else we wanted to do. We don't have time to serve in the Sunday school. We're too busy. We don't have time to visit a shut-in. We're too busy. We show up uh, for worship with only a brain cell or two still operational. And God says, try that with your boss. Try showing up for work when it's convenient, after you've done everything else you wanted to do. See how long you're going to work there. Or try sleeping through your meetings with your boss when he or she is giving you the vision for the uh, company or, or, or telling you about something they want done differently. Is your boss or your coach going to put up with that? Yet that's how we treat God. We give Him the throwaway parts of our lives. Now the reality is, most of, of us spend 40, 50 hours a week at work, and we are tired. That takes a lot of time and energy. And God isn't saying, well now, just to prove yourself, you need to add another 50 or 60 hours a week at church. This isn't about church. This is about serving God. About recognizing who He is. God's saying, I will not be treated lightly. I love you too much to let you act that way. It's wrong. It's offensive. He is God. Verse 11. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. His name will be great. He is God. Don't treat Him like He was nothing. He is your master. Find out what He wants you to do and do it. Verse 12. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled and of its food, it's contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. See, we say, what a burden. Worshiping God is such a drag. So boring. Serving God is such a burden. I don't have time to honor my parents with a phone call. I I don't have time to, to get involved with a growth group where I can help others. I don't have the energy to reach out. It's too hard. Besides, it's a waste of time. You know, as as I read through Malachi, these guys sound like a bunch of unchallenged teenage kids. Everything is boring. Everything is too hard. You know, when you have kids that are acting that way, maybe it's because you've never challenged them adequately. You've never given them something that, 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 that is worth doing, is worth giving themselves to, is hard enough. One of the things we need to teach our children is you get out of things what you put into them. When they put in a half-hearted effort, what they get out of it is tedious. It is boring. But when they try something challenging and they throw their whole self into it, it's exciting. 
Fun is the word that kids use. Let me challenge you. Are you finding the worship and service of God drudgery, tiresome? But what are you putting into it? Are, Are you coming here to worship, expecting to lift your voice to God for His pleasure? Are are you coming here prepared to hear what He wants to say to you and to respond to that? Have you tried getting involved in a ministry that's that's beyond you? Like maybe working with junior high or high school or or maybe it's just inviting all your neighbors over to watch a Jesus video or, 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 or committing yourself to praying daily for people at work or hosting a growth group or helping with a women's ministry. We're not talking about just playing Christian a little harder here. That doesn't do anybody any good. What we're talking about is recognizing who God is, that He is worthy of your very best. That He is worthy of you getting down on your knees before Him and giving your entire life to Him, your time, your money, your energy, laying it all before Him. Because as as verse 14 ends with, He is a great King and His name is to be feared among the nations. See again, God loves you. And He gives you this call because He loves you. God doesn't want to just add one more thing to your already hectic schedule. Just the opposite is true. He wants to lighten your burden. He wants to give you peace and rest. And God doesn't need your time and energy any more than He needed the the, the sacrifices of the Israelites. But God loves you and He wants an honest relationship with you. He doesn't want you to keep ignoring Him. He loves you too much to just let you slip away. He loves you too much to just let you go on playing Christian. See, this message, Malachi, is His love. It's His call. Spend time with Him. The God of the universe says that He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to spend time with you. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, praise you. I I look at the prophets and we know that uh, they sometimes feel harsh. They feel attacking. But we recognize that it is your love appealing to us, calling us back. Or protect us from the attacks of the enemy that would just cause us to be discouraged and despair. But instead, help us to worship you for loving us like this. For keep coming after us. Lord, we want to be your faithful servants. So we uh, ask you to change us, to free us, to love you. pray this in your name. Amen.